The only sound Reb could hear was the radio chatter through his headset. If he were to take it off, a deafening rush of wind would overwhelm his senses. He stared through the opening and looked down at the checkered ground far below. At 30,000 feet and traveling over 200 miles per hour, he and his crew had to don air masks and wear electrically heated flight suits. If even one smidgen of skin were exposed, it would instantly freeze. As it was, the temperature in the cabin remained at a steady 50 degrees below zero. He checked the 50 caliber machine gun in front of him. It was locked, loaded, and ready to deliver 700 rounds of death per minute on any Nazi fighter brave enough to come within shooting range of the Yankee Raider. Reb was in fact the waste gunner of a B-17 flying fortress in formation with hundreds of other fortresses headed straight toward their target in Germany. Get ready, we have bogeys on our six, the tail gunner stated through the plane's radio. Although Reb couldn't see the German FW-190s to the rear, he positioned the muzzle of his gun as far to the left as he could. Soon he could see tiny specks in the distance that eventually formed into hundreds of German Luftwaffe enemy fighters. Regardless that Reb had been on several missions before, he still felt the rush of adrenaline as he tightened the grip on his gun. The Luftwaffe was infamous for their tactics in aerial combat, but they were going up against the 384th Bomb Group, and there would be hell to pay. This podcast is about heroes in military and law enforcement. Some gave their service for America and served in the armed forces. Some have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, and others protected the local community and died in the line of duty. Our lives would be a whole lot different if it weren't for the hard work and sacrifice of these brave men and women. They could have gone on to live lives that were less dangerous. However, they dedicated themselves to your protection. If you ever have the pleasure of talking to one of them, they'll tell you, I'm not a hero, but I have the honor of walking beside a few. Others will say, the real heroes are those who didn't make it back home. This episode is dedicated to U.S. Army Air Corps Sergeant Olin Reb Grant. Olin was an armament inspector and B-17 waste gunner in the 8th Air Force, 384th Bomb Group, 545th Squadron in World War II. Olin Reb Grant was born in Benton, Arkansas on April 5, 1923. When his father returned from World War I, he moved to Benton and worked for a company that mined for bauxite ore. During the Great Depression, the Grants were unable to keep afloat financially and lost their property. It was at this time the Grants' father had a mental breakdown from PTSD when he fought in France in World War I and was admitted to the VA hospital near Little Rock. Grant attended the local high school while his two sisters were in grade school. While a senior, he joined the Arkansas Army National Guard. As a guardsman, nobody ever dreamed that they would go to war. To Reb, it was just a means to earn money. In the summer of 1941, the battery got orders to train in New Falls, Minnesota for maneuvers. It was there when he witnessed a bombing-run training mission that Grant made up his mind that if he were ever to go to war, he wanted to fight in the air. Eventually, he discharged from the Guard. After graduating high school, Grant joined the Army Air Corps in April of 1942. He didn't want to get caught up in the draft and become a ground pounder. He had a choice where he wanted to go. Because he had already been in the National Guard, 
He didn't have to go through all the rigorous training like other GIs. Grant ended up landing a job inspecting airplanes. At one point, there was a situation where a gun he was inspecting misfired. Although it wasn't entirely his fault, he was demoted from sergeant back to private. Grant was soon assigned to the 384th Bomb Group as a B-17 waste gunner and sent overseas to Grafton Underwood, England. Each flight crew had to fly 25 combat missions before they were allowed some much-needed R&R. However, very few airmen made it past 8 or even 10 missions. The air war over Europe experienced some of the greatest loss of life during World War II. During the entire course of the war, the 384th flew over 316 combat missions in Europe. Grant flew as a tail gunner for the first mission in France. After dropping their payload, they turned around and headed back to England. When starting over the English Channel, they were the last airplane in the formation. This was when the Germans would take the opportunity to fly up from behind and try to hit them as they were low on fuel and exhausted from the extremely long mission, some lasting up to 15 hours. Grant found himself in town the day before his final mission. In between missions, most of the crew would lie around and wait because there was nothing to do. At around 8 p.m., Grant took off and went to Leicester, where he did some pub crawling. As soon as the pub ran out of supplies, they would shut down. That's when Grant and other American GIs would just go to the next pub and continue drinking. In England, it didn't get dark until really late. It was about 10 p.m. when the MPs from base started looking for Grant. They finally found him in the morning and took him back to base. He didn't know it, but he was on the roster for his final mission that very day. He met his new crew for the first time. In the morning of September 6, 1943, Reb's plane took off with 338 other B-17 flying fortresses for a bombing raid on a weapons factory in Stuttgart, Germany. Because of an error made by the lead bomber, the formation flew over the cloud-covered target three times before they were able to see clearly enough to mark their targets. Between the anti-aircraft fire at the target and the German Luftwaffe fighters that harassed the formation, 45 U.S. bombers went down, and hundreds of airmen went missing in action. It is a fact that if a soldier was assigned as a bombing crew member, they were more likely to die than any infantry soldier on the ground. Reb's plane, the Yankee Raider, survived the initial bombing run. The B-17s would be running on fumes by the time they made it back to England, so they had to abandon their secondary target. As the massive bomber formation slowly turned west back to England, the Yankee Raider was last in the formation. They had sustained some heavy damage and were lagging behind. The pilot informed the crew that once they got to the English Channel, they would have to ditch the plane and bail out. The pilot then dropped to a lower altitude to try to get the last mileage out of the gas. They were sitting ducks for the Luftwaffe fighters who were waiting for them. It was only a matter of time before they were shot down. Several other B-17s from their group had to land in Switzerland because they couldn't make the trip back to the English Channel. Reb's pilot considered making the change in flight before a fire broke out in the cockpit. That was when all hell broke loose, and a group of German Focke-Wulf 190s headed in their direction. With every available crew member manning a gun, the Yankee Raider began blazing a trail through the heavily armed German fighters. The pilot then made the call to bail out. Crew members began grabbing parachutes and abandoning their stations, making their way for the exits. This was when Grant was hit. 
It was the last thing he remembers as the plane plummeted from the sky. He didn't feel a thing when he was hit. He remembered standing up, blazing away at the fighters before he found himself on the floor, gazing up at the ceiling. One of the German fighters had blasted a 20mm round through the fuselage right beside him. His hand and arm were peppered with shrapnel. The round ended up entering his right temple just behind his eye and exiting directly through his right eye. As one of the gunners went to get parachutes for the crew, he returned to find Grant dazed and lying on the floor. The gunner started preparing Reb's chute so he could get out of the plane. Grant then yelled to him to save himself because he thought he was a goner. As the other crew members jumped out of the plane, Grant saw the ball turret gunner emerge from his hatch. After donning his own parachute, he helped Grant out with his chute. The two tried to maintain their balance as the plane lurched from side to side. As if in slow motion, Grant remembers when a round from one of the German fighters burst through the wall and impacted the gunner directly in the chest. In a rush of wind, he fell out of the large opening in one of the sides. Grant's parachute wasn't completely on, but it didn't matter. He was sure that the wounds would kill him soon enough before the plane crashed. Below, in a local French village, bystanders saw the B-17 fall from the sky and hit the ground in a cloud of smoke and dust. It was a miracle, but Grant survived the crash. One of the witnesses rushed into the aircraft and carried Grant out to safety. At the time, he was unconscious. When he came to, he was lying in a basement, probably being hidden from the Germans. He was able to open his one eye, and he felt cold. He looked down and saw that his flight suit was gone. He was dressed in some civilian clothes. A candle flickered on the other side of the room. He noticed some people around him before he passed out again. The next time he awoke, he was in the back of a German ambulance on its way to a railroad station in Paris. There was a German guard sitting next to him eating something. Grant remembers when the soldier looked in his direction and handed him a grape. He fell unconscious again and came to in Paris on an operating table. He tried to get up before a nurse gave him a shot. He was then out again for one to two weeks. The guys he shared a room with said that he was unconscious for so long they thought he wouldn't survive. Finally, he mumbled something and the roommates came running over surprised that he had survived. The hospital was subject to air raids because they were at the edge of the industrial district that was bombed constantly. The German AAA guns would shoot at the bombers from across the river. During these raids, anyone could get killed from falling debris that came from the planes who were hit. Many times, Grant could hear shrapnel raining down on the roof above. When he was able to walk, Grant would station himself in a chair near a large window. He would look out on the vast city of Paris with the Eiffel Tower in the distance. Memories his dad would tell him about his time in World War I came back to him, and he found it ironic that he was in the same city during a very different war. Grant was treated pretty well in the hospital. The only differences between him and the German wounded soldiers are that they were segregated. A week after he was admitted and stabilized, Grant's family was notified that he was in the hospital and was safe from harm. After some more recovery, Grant left about the third week in October of 1943, just before the second Schweinfurt raid and taken to Dulag Luft, a transit camp near Frankfurt. When they finally arrived at the camp, Grant was put in a cell of his own, where he remained until he was interrogated. 
Eventually, he was sent to another POW camp, Stalag 18B, that provided for overflow prisoners. This was where he met up with one of his crew members, Dodolin. He thought for sure that Grant had been killed when the plane went down and was astonished when he ran into him. After a while, Grant was sent back to Frankfurt to a transit camp. This camp was right up next to a chemical plant. It was planned this way to keep the Allies from bombing it. This camp was run by English POWs. Some of the medical staff there also attended to Grant's wounds. Food in the camp was pretty basic. They started off with a piece of black bread in the morning. This would be their ration for the day. In the mornings, they would also receive some Irsatz coffee. For supper, they were given watery soup with some kind of meat in it, probably horse. And that was it, two meals a day. The men were also allowed to receive parcels from home via the Red Cross. Grant's mother sent him a number of packages, but only one ever got to him. One of the British medical staff noticed that Grant would need additional surgery and pulled some strings to get him to Vienna, Austria. His operation was in February of 1944. The surgeon did a skin graft, and after returning to the original hospital, he fixed Grant's graft so his wounded eye could drain. Grant dealt with this for the rest of his life. The entire right side of his face was paralyzed until about 2010. Grant shared the hospital recovery room with three other Americans, including himself and an Englishman. Even though Vienna was an open city, the factories in Weiner Neustadt were bombed. When that happened, the sirens blew, and Grant and the others had to get to the basement. Olin spent the Christmas of 1943 in another prison camp. He only got one letter from his mother, but she received every one he had written. Sometimes his letters were even published in the local newspaper back home. Because of the severity of Grant's wounds, the German authorities and the Red Cross agreed that he would be repatriated back to the United States as part of a large prisoner exchange. Within two or three weeks, they were notified that individual prisoners would be returning to their own country. Once selected for repatriation, the men were as good as free. They were treated differently than they were at the prison camps, and the food quality was much better. They went by train to Krems, all the way up to Annaberg, Germany, just outside of Berlin. During the train ride, they saw the results of Allied bombing raids. Hollowed-out building skeletons and debris littered the countryside. Craters potmarked the landscape on either side of the train cars. When they arrived in Leipzig, the train station was completely gone. Grant didn't give any thought to it, as he was soon going to receive his freedom. He just wanted to get back home, but by looking around at the former train station, he knew it was still possible he might not make it out. At the new facility, the POWs were fed a nice meal and given brand new clothes. They were told they would need to go back through Germany to Switzerland, where they would eventually be transferred to France, then to the States. As they were crossing a lake into Switzerland, American POWs passed by a boat of German POWs who were headed in the other direction. Grant and his fellow GIs knew that they were headed back for freedom in their homeland. However, the haggard looks on the face of the German POWs told a very different story. It really sunk in that Grant was a free man when he arrived in New York City. He expected crowds of flag-waving people waiting to greet their returning heroes. However, the dock was completely empty of fanfare. After leaving the ship, they headed to a hospital on Staten Island. While there, Grant ran into a friend who had been sent to New York and another group of repatriated prisoners. 
His friend was there with his wife and her friend. As Grant was introduced to this new woman, he had no idea that they would soon get married. Olin Reb Grant endured several more operations and procedures before he left the service. The army tried to get him to stay, but he was ready to begin his life as a civilian. He was discharged at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania after six months of terminal leave. Combat pushed Grant into maturity very quickly. It also settled him down and made him understand that it was time for him to try to make something of his life. By the time he had recovered enough to find a job, there was no work to be found. With the floods of veterans returning from both fronts of the war, competition was very high. After the war, nobody wanted to hear stories of the veterans' experiences. They felt isolated and alone. To add to it, all of Grant's brothers and sisters had died. He was the last remaining member of his family. Eventually, Grant earned a degree in journalism from the University of Arkansas, then worked as a reporter and a technical writer in several states. During the 1960s, Grant was working at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. His wife was an RN, and her salary was barely enough for them to get by on. Finally, the Army granted him full disability. In addition to all of the benefits, he was able to send his three kids to college. Terry Kendrick, one of Grant's daughters, stated that throughout her father's experiences in his life, he never complained and was never bitter towards his enemies. She said she was grateful for all of the sacrifices he and the others who served with the 384th had made for our nation. He's an example for all of us, Terry continued. He is my hero. For more information about Olin Grant's life, I recommend reading the book To Kingdom Come, An Epic Saga of Survival in the Air War Over Germany by Robert J. Mrazek. In his later years, Olin Grant lived with his family in Utah. After a short battle with cancer, he died on September 28, 2014, at the age of 91. He was laid to rest in Greenwood Cemetery in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Remember My Name podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at RememberMyNamePodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at RememberMyNamePodcast and Twitter at RMNPodcast. So take a moment and remember this name, Olin Grant. <laughs>